Welcome to Creating Synergy, where we explore what it takes to transform. We are powered by Synergy IQ. Our mission is to help leaders create world-class businesses where people are safe, valued, inspired, and fulfilled. We can only do this with our amazing community. So thank you for listening. Hey there, Synergizers, and welcome back to another episode of the Creating Synergy podcast. My name is Daniel Franco, and today we have a man on the show who is touted as one of the most networked human beings in South Australia, Mr. Adrian Temple, the chief executive partner of one of the largest law firms in Australia, Thompson Gear. Adrian is a prominent South Australian lawyer and businessman and is an economics and honours law graduate of the University of Adelaide. He began practicing corporate and technology law at Thompson Gear in 1993 and partner of Thompson Gear in 1997 and went on to become the chief executive partner in 2009 and held the position ever since. When operating as a full-time lawyer, Adrian specialized in the corporate and technology space and had the opportunity to serve on some of the most amazing pieces of work. One, namely, was with one of the greatest drivers of Formula One, Ann Senna, and his merchandising team. Adrian's focus is now on leading Thompson Gear, where as chief executive partner, he has grown the Adelaide headquartered Thompson Gear to a major Australian law firm with the annual revenue of close to $200 million. At the time of this podcast, Thompson Gear is ranked 10th largest law firm by partner, 22nd in South Australia's top private companies, and rose 32 places in 2019-2020 in Australia's top 500 private company rankings, and has now got offices all around Australia in Adelaide, Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, and Perth. Adrian is an advisor to the Premier of South Australia, Stephen Marshall, and in 2018, he was appointed as Commissioner of the South Australian Productivity Commission and went on to become Chair of this Commission in July 2021. Further to this, he has the time to be able to serve as Director of the Menzies Research Centre as well. In this episode, Adrian and I touch on his journey from being a full-time lawyer to becoming the Chief Executive Partner of Thompson Gear. And as a very proud South Australian, he provides his insights into how we can build and make South Australia better by focusing on building a world-class research and development platform. I love the modesty coming from Adrian in this episode where he describes himself as insecure and not very talented person, but he was able to share with us that through hard work and persistence, it is possible to really achieve great things. We also deep-dived into his thoughts around his journey and how he ended up in the legal world, how the impending liquidation of the company led him to become the chief executive partner, the strategy and mindset that turned around the company's financial position, his learnings and experiences through the process, his thoughts on the roles CEOs play in the company's culture, how he manages his time, his role as an advisor to Stephen Marshall, and he provides some amazing advice for up-and-coming CEOs. I know you're absolutely going to love this chat, and if you'd like to learn more about some of the other amazing speakers and leaders that we've had on the Creating Synergy podcast, then be sure to jump on our website at synergyiq.com.au or check us out at Spotify or Apple Podcasts or any of your podcast outlets. Welcome back to the Creating Synergy podcast. My name is Daniel Franco, your host, and today we have a very great man by the name of Adrian (laughs) Temple. Welcome to the show, Adrian. Well, pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. 
So, Adrian, I'm going to start off with um, <laughs> if you Google your name, you Google, you start typing in Adrian Temple in Google, and it has it offers a few suggestions, right? It says Adrian Temple, and some of the suggestions are Adrian Temple House, Adrian Temple Net Worth, Adrian Temple, <laughs> Adrian Temple Wife, Adrian Temple Sheep Farm. <laughs> Can you uh, can you explain why people want to know about your sheep farm? Well, well, I, I can explain. Um, uh, I, I've only ever been told about that once before, and it was from my wife. Oh, there you go. Because she got quite upset when she saw Adrian Temple wife, and it, then she pressed in, but it wasn't a photograph of her. It was a, it it was was a professional a, it, photograph. It was. And um, uh, there's a few of them with other women, other professional women I've taken a photo with. So she was a bit upset about that. Uh, it, it is uh, quite weird because I did but, click on it. I thought, oh, is <laughs> thank it, is you. Her? <laughs> because it's, it's interesting. Everyone's benchmarking everyone, aren't they? They are. Uh, women and men. So, uh, But look, I, I, I don't know why people take an interest in those things, but, but I guess they do. I think they're a function of people clicking and searching, aren't they? Yeah, it, yeah, it's yeah. what's searched most. So, yeah. it, well, under my belief, so I, yeah, people searching your wife is. I, uh, I learned an interesting lesson in media management. Not that the media is interested in me, but Polly bought a home that was quite prominent a few years ago. Polly's my wife. Yeah. And we were very, very keen to keep it out of the newspapers for obvious reasons. Is that the one at Gilberton? Yes. <laughs> it's uh, all over the newspaper. Yeah. Well, what happened was, was that we made a big mistake. We, we actually retained a public relations firm to lobby the advertising. We, we knew they wanted to talk about it yeah. and we worked really hard on trying to convince the advertiser that it wasn't newsworthy and we wanted to protect the privacy of our family. Yeah. And, of course, by working hard to keep it private, I think they went in the opposite direction yeah. and wanted to know more. So it, it was a little bit of a lesson. It would have been publicised anyway, mm. but we learned a lesson. In, um, uh, the more you try to keep things out of the spotlight, the yeah. more people want to put it in. Yeah. Well, it's uh, like when you say to a kid, don't touch that, and the first thing. They do the first thing. <laughs> exactly right. Exactly right. <laughs> anyway. Um, so, yeah, no, it's a lovely home. It's all over <laughs> if anyone wants to search it. <laughs> but anyway, we won't go there. So it was tell a slow us. news day. It was a slow news day in Adelaide. So, so tell us a little bit more. Why are people searching, Adrian? And tell us a little bit about your journey. Like where did you? Well, I don't know if they're searching. Uh, I guess if I put your name in Google, which I have, there'd be a, a lot more hits well, and references not, than there is for me. Well, purely by our marketing, not by anyone else. I think mm. everyone else is writing articles on yourself. Uh, there is a famous Daniel Franco in um, in America, actually. Is there? Uh, yeah. And what was he famous for? Oh, uh, fashion designer. Oh, that's, that's Yeah, true. yeah. So Is he handsome? I, I believe so. I think he was on that Project <laughs> Runway, right? So anyone with that name typically is. Well, my name, just to talk, because <laughs> we're here to talk about me. <laughs> uh, my <laughs> name is actually very unique, my surname. And... As far as I know still, it, it's the only temple in Australia mm. uh, and I've always taken a bit of an interest in its background. It's quite a confusing background. Uh, but if you put my name in, it, it'll be the only one so I don't have yeah. famous people like yours well, to, um, well, there you go. to so trade off. You don't have, and I know this might be strategically, you don't have a LinkedIn profile. I am... I mean, this goes back to your early question. I'm, I'm such an insecure, <laughs> low-confidence person that yeah. the idea of doing any social media is way beyond me. Yeah. I, I see it as narcissistic and, and egotistical. And, of course, it's not because you know, 
the whole world's on social yeah, media, that's right. pretty much except for me. But luckily, I'm old <laughs> enough to get away with it. So, so, I'm, so I'm not on LinkedIn because I think, why would anyone want to know anything about me? Well, you type in Adrian Temple on LinkedIn and there is no other, no Adrian Temple no, that comes no. up. So it is a very unique name just going It's a funny point. name. It's, uh, I've researched it. My, so so my, my parents are, um, I guess they're, whether you call them Soviet refugees or post-war Soviet displaced persons, there's a bit of a debate about whether you qualify as a refugee or a displaced person, but they, their families were torn up by the Second World War and they found, found themselves down here in Australia. So I, I grew up as a child of post-war Soviet refugees. And so you take a bit of an interest in your background, but then sometimes you don't because you're trying hard to integrate in and become a young Australian. Yeah. So. So it's only been as I've gotten older that I've taken interest in my background, but the um, uh, the name is actually quite a common name in Israel uh, to describe a historical uh, hat that was used during the development of uh, Israel as a nation. So uh, my, my name's got all sorts of connectivity and backgrounds. Yeah, there you go. Brilliant. So you are CEO of Thompson Gear Lawyers. Yes. Tell us about your journey to there. So, you, you know, parents... Refugees, growing yes. up as a child, trying to fit in. Trying to fit in, outsider, growing up in a working class neighbourhood in the northwest of Adelaide in the 1970s, you know, full of manufacturing jobs, but manufacturing jobs that are disappearing. So in that neighbourhood, the majority of the kids had dads who were working in uh, the motor vehicle industry, were mm -hmm. making cars in Woodville. Yep. Uh, Making towels or producing towels and and bed sheeting at Actil, which is another factory around mm -hmm. the corner. Mm -hmm. uh, televisions at Phillips, and white goods just a little bit further up into Pennington. So I grew up in Seaton, and and massive manufacturing neighbourhood. Mm. And and you know, looking back, it doesn't seem that long ago, but maybe you know, twenty thousand manufacturing jobs uh, in that area. Yeah, wow. Uh, and now there's none. None. And all of the decline began when I was a boy because essentially tariffs were being withdrawn, first by the Whitlam government and then by the Hawke government. Mm -hmm. And that was good for the Australian consumer because suddenly with tariffs being taken out, cars were cheaper, mm -hmm. towels were cheaper, televisions were cheaper, but it meant that all those jobs just disappeared. And so it was, it was a very interesting time to grow up because proudly working class, but little by little as I made it through Seton North Primary and then Seton High, um, one by one, you know, our dads were losing their jobs mm. um, and uh, that had a big impact on the morale and the confidence of that era. Interestingly, though, at the same time on the positive, women were starting to come into the workforce. So as, as our dads were losing our jobs, their jobs, mm. um, our mums were stepping in to work, uh, including Great. my mum. And so, you know, it was a, a beginning of a lot of change. Mm. So you, you're a Seton High boy. Yes, Go, go through to Seton High and then into university. What, does, what, what sort of struck your uh, fancy with the legal world? It, the, the typical case of you're, you, you want to make some progress in life, but you're not that talented. So, so you're, not, you're not going to be a rock star or a, I can see, know, I'm sitting in the same boat. An extraordinary – well, most of us are. Yeah. Uh, so what do you try and do? Well, you want to become – a little middle class so you can give your children a little more. Mm. Uh, and what do you do? You choose a profession, mm. uh, you know, a doctor or a lawyer. And so the lawyer thing uh, made sense. So I aspired from quite a young age to be a lawyer. 
Uh, and so I went to law school and also studied economics. Um, and so a very conventional, safe pathway to middle-class Australia. Beautiful. So was there anything about the legal profession that sort of drew you in or was it, was it really just to set yourself up? Just the ignorant perception as a youngster. Uh, my dad was a carpet layer mm-hmm. uh, and my mum then did some secretarial work when, when she entered the workforce. Um, but basically the perception that you could earn a reasonable income and you might be even respected at the same time, yeah. which would be nice. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so your career is one that I want to sort of unpack a little bit. So let's talk about your first few years and coming out of university into straight into Thompson Gear. Yes. To the point now where you're an advisor to Stephen Marshall. Can we talk in that, in that space? Yes. Talk to us about your growth and your learning, learning in, that, in that time. Look, it, my career is a classic example of somebody who has significant weaknesses and limitations but who takes the view that if you just stick to a particular pathway and build some expertise and specialist skills and you see it through with hard work, that you can make progress Mm. and that you can just keep building and evolving and come out at the end uh, in a a leadership position, doing interesting things and living a life like I do, which is, you know, every morning you get up and you're excited and uh, you're looking forward to seeing whether you can advance a little further. So it's a great example of someone with limited talent, but just who stays very focused and stays quite disciplined and sees it through. And my early years were a bit of a grind, I must admit, mm. but I was determined to just build some basic skills and, and, and relationships that would then take things to where we are today. So for someone who's trying to grow their career, when you talk about being focused and determined, can you talk specifically about what that was for you? Well, it's, a, it's such a – I'm a very dull person. So <laughs> if anyone listening is already falling asleep. But, but You've got beautiful yeah. dulcet tones. Oh, oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> Even Gabriella's sort of dozing (laughs) off, but she, no, no, look, for me, it's about just, I'm a routine person. Yeah. Um, So being, being reliable and building a reputation for being reliable and, and, and showing a deep interest in what you're doing and demonstrating some enthusiasm, you put those two things together. And if you're in Australia, you you know, you're well on the way to, to going somewhere. So, mm. so for me, it was about sticking to the plan and, you know, we all have bad days, but having a view that on a bad day, um, if I just persevere, of course, I'll recover and get into a good day soon. So pretty basic principles. Yeah. What did you specialise in? Well, I were, look, this was a very lucky break. Er, in the early years, I came through just post that recession in the early 90s Mm. as a graduate, high unemployment, very difficult to find professional jobs, Uh, picked up a job in this firm um, that I was very, very pleased to get. I was delighted to get into one of the big commercial firms here in Adelaide. This firm was struggling at the time. It had been a wonderful firm in the 80s and then it got really smashed with a bit of bad luck and a few other things in the late 80s. Uh, And so when I joined, it was coming off a very difficult period and Mm. wasn't recruiting much. So I pick up this job uh, and work is quiet and there isn't much around. But very luckily, I got introduced to a client that was uh, doing some great things in the Grand Prix industry. 
uh, and I started to do some really interesting work in that space. And it was colorful and exciting. So yeah, I, I, was, I was dealing with contracts and licenses and doing deals on behalf of this merchandising client, uh, you know, with Ayrton Senna's management group, yeah, well. Elaine Prost, the Williams team, Coulthart, Schumacher, all those big names of the 90s. Yeah. Uh, and doing Thanks. that from Adelaide uh, gave me a degree of confidence and profile and, and it allowed me to go on and win some new clients. How did you go about the acquisition of those clients? Like, did, was it really relationship based? Was it cold call? Like, what was your methodology into being introduced to these people and then all of a sudden building that relationship? I was never a great marketer, yeah. but I was extremely devoted to the interests of every client that I was retained to represent. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think a lot of them sensed that and they felt that I was so devoted and so fixated with helping them create value and be successful uh, that they thought, you know, he might not be a brilliant lawyer, not a brilliant lawyer at all, obviously, because uh, I wouldn't be in business, I wouldn't be running the firm now. If, if you're a great lawyer, you, you, you keep being a good lawyer. Uh, but I think they felt that I was stretching for them. Yeah. And interestingly on that, I, was, I, I appealed to a really entrepreneurial class of client, mm. uh, usually men yeah. who really wanted to get somewhere and they enjoyed having someone younger who was equally focused. I didn't appeal to public sector clients. Mm. They found me a little too high energy mm -hmm. and not necessarily as conservative as quite rightly a public sector organisation is. So, so I did a lot of work in the 90s for what was then the DSTO. I think it's called DST now and it's the big research laboratories in the north, yeah. big technology producer, very prestigious client. Uh, I did quite well there, but they, my style didn't quite suit their very conservative style. Yeah. What were some of the most exciting projects that you worked on? Well, well, well that Grand Prix work yeah. was very exciting because, it, you know, you, you, you did the work, uh, you secured these rights, the big breakthrough deal. It's a great story. It, it, it was actually an Adelaide-based client that was built around the Adelaide Grand Prix. Uh, two really entrepreneurial men, one of whom I'm still friendly with, one of whom sadly passed away far too young. But the can you, um, can you mention their names? Yeah, Alan yeah. Simons. Oh, yeah. And, and and one of the great thing about Alan, uh, what I'm delighted about, was he introduced me to his son Josh. Yeah. And he's now a partner here That's and one great. of my colleagues. Uh, he was a young Pembroke boy at the time and uh, had full of talent. And he's a great lawyer here. So lovely connection. The guy was a guy called David Eckert, yeah. who was quite an entrepreneurial person. Um, and, and great sales skills. But, but what, what they managed to do in the 90s is persuade Ayrton Senna's uh, management team to award them, a little Adelaide company, Ayrton Senna's exclusive worldwide rights to merchandise his name, yeah, commercialise wow. his name. It was a huge breakthrough deal. And they, and they put in enormous upfront, they really bet the farm, they put in enormous up, upfront payments to win those rights. So we negotiated, it was a huge breakthrough. We get the deal. I think IMG in London was representing Ant and Senna. Uh, so I, I was dealing with the elite of entertainment lawyers in yeah. London. We get the deal. We sign up all the payments, big upfront payments, bet the farm, and within about a week, he dies, tragically. Uh, and I still remember Alan calling me. It was a, it was a Sunday, I think, because it was in a race, wasn't it? So Alan rings me on the Monday morning and, and in a huge flat because – what do our contracts do in the event of death? And he has bet the farm on this deal. And if the deal now terminates, he's got major problems. Or if Ayrton Senna's name doesn't commercialise uh, much value. I mean, 
He was deeply upset about the passing of oh, Senator first, without, but, but he had to think about his family. Absolutely, right. You, and what happened? Mourn the death, then what's next? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was petrified that I'd screwed up the contract. It turns out that our rights were secure. And just to finish that story, all of those big upfront payments were recovered by merchandising sales in Japan within about three months. Yeah, unbelievable. And those payments were made amortised. They were there to underwrite a contract for the next maybe five or so years. I can't recall precisely. <laughs> they made all their money back in a few months and then it was a huge success because Ensenator's name just became even more, even more famous. Yeah. So that was, was a fun story when I was, you know, maybe a two-year lawyer. Yeah, wow. Uh, and that was a bit of a breakthrough moment on dealing with not just the excitement of it but having put together a deal that withstood an external shock. This is a bit in that. Um, you almost picked the stock at the right time, didn't you? <laughs> well, I did and the client no, the did. the client did. Yeah. I, I, it's obviously unfortunate and Ensign is an absolute legend. But, yeah, yeah, I mean, from a talk about value of name and product, it goes up when, uh, when someone does pass away. I think it's a real example of men and women who stretch and take risk mm. and lay it on the line. And they know that good things might happen, mm. uh, but there'll be twists and turns uh, that might go their way. Uh, whether whether buying a development side of real estate or get buying intellectual yeah. property, and like in that case, or backing a research project, and that's that's why I loved in my legal years. I was working with men and women who made big bets in a creative way, and you ne never knew how it was going to play out. That's terribly exciting. Terribly, as a young lawyer in yeah. Adelaide, terribly exciting. It's there's something about living with the ambiguity, though, isn't it? I think high risk, high reward. Is that the old? Is that kind of where you're playing with? Well, I, well. I just think it's more you just don't know what's going to happen today. Mm. And how good is that? Yeah. Because if you wake up every morning and you know what lies ahead, it gets dull. And again, being a young lawyer in that space, the call would come through at any time. The client says, have a guess what I've just secured. I've got a deal in this case I was talking about, you know, we've just signed Prost. We've got a month to get the contract up, go to work. And that was a huge amount of fun. And then I went into the biotech sector. Yeah. The Liberal government in the 90s really did great things. They created Bioinnovation SA. Mm -hmm. um, they hired a guy called Jürgen Michaelis, who was a really entrepreneurial energy person, and he built the local biotech scene strongly. Uh, and off the back of my intellectual property skills, I picked up some mandates in that space and, again, worked with a number of companies who were you know, pursuing drug development or medical device development, mm -hmm. high-risk projects but projects that are terribly exciting because if they work, you solve a big um, uh, health problem that's mm -hmm. global yeah. and shareholders make some money along the way as well. So th that's how I finished off the 90s working off in the, that space. So you moved into the big leagues quite quickly though, didn't you? For you saying year two, a year two lawyer. That was a lucky break. Yeah, okay. And then the biotech space was a lucky break because I was still in my 20s, uh, but there weren't many lawyers locally who had those skills and I traded off. It's a stepping stone. The Grand Prix work caught the eye of the DSTO, yeah. even though it was a different type of intellectual property. It yeah. was quite globally interesting. And then doing technology work at the DSTO was very prestigious. And then the local biotech community picked up on that and thought, well, it's cutting edge technology commercialization work. Mm. So he's competent. And that gave me a run into companies. Um, uh, some of them, They've disappeared, but there was a company that was very prominent at the time called Growpep, listed Big market cap taken over by the Danish, uh, but they were doing cutting-edge commercialization work. 
uh, and they retained me to work on those global projects with them. So that gave me a run into other things as well. You say a lucky break, but you have to put yourself into the situation or the position to be able to receive that break. Yep. What did you do in that? Do you, in- do you know, I've told this, of course, I do a lot of training with young lawyers in my firm. Do you know that I can trace back all of the client base that I build? It became quite substantial in the 2000s, back to just one or two people. And one person introduced me to that person yeah. and then, that, then I did some good work for that person. And so I can trace it back <laughs> pretty much to one or two people. So that is luck. Because one of them was just a, a friend of my brother's. Oh, there you go. And, you know, Frank Falco. <laughs> and then he kicked me into, he, he introduced me to Simon Hackett. Yeah, okay. And yeah. Simon Hackett became one of the great tech entrepreneurs yeah, in this city. absolutely. Uh, and Simon Is retained. Internode? Internode, Internode, yeah. And became a very wealthy man. Uh, and I backed, he backed me and I rode that wave as well. So, look, Daniel, it's all about people. Yeah. Everything is about people. I think that's where I wanted to get to. Yes. So it's yeah. a relationship game, isn't it? It sure is. But then you've got to make sure once you had the luck of meeting the right people uh, that you add value to them mm. and not yeah. trade off a friendship. I think that's awful when in business yeah. people trade off friendships. But I think it's wonderful when you get on well and you've got that mutual commercial respect uh, and you can add value and what a wonderful combo of working with people you like and helping them achieve their goal. Mm. So that, that's a wonderful part of being a commercial lawyer. So let's touch on the keep your wits about you. You, you see time and time again stories of, of young, really sort of excellent uh, uh, lawyers or, or entrepreneurs or whoever it might be in their career. Even when you look at sporting, the footballers, they, they, they become young, quite, uh, quite popular, quite uh, earning some good coin and they go down the wrong path. You get involved with some, some of the wrong people. How did you keep your wits about you in that well, space? Well, I think I'm a bit like you. Uh, I think you and I have spoken about this. I think one of the – and maybe I'm just boring, but <laughs> I, I want to peak as late as possible in my life as possible. Mm. Um, mm. So I, I want to be at my best when I'm turning 100 yeah. so that everything in my life is about advancement yeah. because the fear of um, reaching your peak and still having all of the energy and health to continue but the best days are behind you, that would really upset and frighten me. And so, you know, like you, I'm just wanting to progress steadily yeah. and play a long game. Yeah. So in answer to your question, is it about the – you know, sporting friends who have had these wonderful years at the Olympics and then um, they, would, they don't regret it, but maybe everything after that is a letdown. Is that, mm. is that one of the risks of being a, a great athlete? You'd never say no to it, but I look at that and say, um, you know, I wish they were able to push on and, and continue to advance and not always look back yeah. at their Olympic years and say, you know, that was the best moment. Yeah, the, the tortoise and the hare, the slow and steady. Yeah, tortoise and hare, but, but – I think always wanting to advance no yeah. matter what you've done today. I mean, I haven't achieved anything interesting, but I'd still hope to achieve something better in the future. Does that, that come down to your values, like your own personal values, that growth, learning, experience? I don't. No. I, I just think it's a product of uh, I couldn't make the Olympics. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I 
I didn't. I was a very keen athlete, yeah. um, but I certainly wasn't good enough to go to that level, and so I didn't have a choice. Did you play a little bit sport? I was a, I was a four hundred meter runner. I think four hundred. Very yes. specific. and I you know won a few state titles and represented the state in national events as a as a student oh, on a number of occasions, but what wasn't the standard, obviously, to. Um, Represent the country, which is a huge disappointment for me. Yeah, and now you're into your cycling. I took up cycling. Yeah, uh, and I've got a very keen uh, desire every Saturday morning to get up early and ride in the beautiful Adelaide Hills and stay fit and stimulated. Uh, and I've been lucky to have a good group of friends over the years that I cycle with um, and continue to. And we've got a long lunch planned this afternoon. Yes, at a beautiful Adelaide restaurant. Uh, so we we drink wine more now than cycle. But but uh, cycling in Adelaide is one of the great <laughs> Dividends of living in this town. Yeah, it is beautiful. It's just it beautiful. we're looking at the hills here. Absolutely. As 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 we sit here and, and they're magnificent. They are. They're magnificent. It's hard to argue. What did you do in your years to become so good that they couldn't ignore you for the CEO role? Well, I I think I've got a good story for you on this. Let's one. let's do it. Because <laughs> when I was I think 30, which isn't um young anymore i think young men and women can be very successful in business at a young age particularly in tech but in the conservative legal industry at 30 it's young. i was adamant that i was ready to lead this firm and that there was a huge amount of reform that was required mm-hmm. uh and that the leadership uh, wasn't up to it and i say that language in that blunt way because clearly i might have been enthusiastic but i lacked <laughs> any degree of self-awareness <laughs> and diplomacy <laughs> And so I made a hard run uh, and uh, for a little moment I was given some uh, leadership uh, access uh, and then I basically alienated everyone. Uh, And by 32 I was using a political lunch on on the back bench. I was a young partner here. The firm was much smaller and less successful then, but but still it it was quite large and I was on the back bench and viewed as divisive at 32. But with very strong views about what the firm needed to do to be successful. And then a few years later, um, a number of things happen and the firm's not traveling well, and there's a GFC. And at 39, having continued to be a partner in the firm and enjoying my legal work, um, the guys actually came to me and said, Actually, will you lead the firm? Because we've got deep problems. And we think that your enthusiasm and your priorities about what we need to do suit the firm's requirements and will you do it? So interestingly, it it required the failure and the lesson of needing to be a little more diplomatic and sensitive Mm. to lead people uh, before people thought I was ready. And, 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 And that's when I became the head of this firm. That's 12 years ago. Yeah, well done. So what was it about the failure? that the board came to you and said, Adrian, we believe you can get us out of this. Well, I had always had very strong views about the need for this firm to be absolutely fixated with being a strongly competitive organisation and therefore to build an organisation that was uh, very focused on accountability, transparency, autonomy, but accountability. And in these legal partnerships, there's a huge variation in style, and I, I believe it needed to be a harder competitive environment that held people to account. And when I was young, there wasn't a big appetite for that. When we're in the middle of a recession, and quite frankly, the firm was on the verge of bankruptcy, um, 
people were prepared to say, well, we have to take our medicine. Yeah. If we're going to turn this thing around, we're going to have to be uh, a different organization. And that annoying guy, Adrian Temple, <laughs> who used to give us a big lecture about that this might happen one day if we didn't pull our socks up, it's happened. Yeah. Um, how would you like to leave? And uh, that's how it came about. So Thompson Gear now, I'm just going to rattle off a couple of stats. One of the top 10 firms in the country by revenue, the seventh largest firm in Australia by headcount, the 10th largest firm by a partner number, the 22nd in South Australia, so number 22, sorry, in South Australia's top private companies and 358 in Australia's top 500 private companies. What was it when you started? Oh, well, the firm's about five times larger today than it was when I began. Yeah. And essentially, we were at, we, we'd, we'd put our toe into Sydney uh, with very limited success. And so we were essentially an Adelaide firm with a little satellite in Sydney. Mm-hmm. And, and now we're a true national institution. Now, for any, anyone that is listening, apart from my mother, <laughs> my mum, I'll tell my mum about this and she'll listen. Uh, but no one else will probably listen to this. So. <laughs> Hopefully one other lawyer might. You've got a f- bit of a following. They but, should listen. No, no, no. <laughs> but when they see my name, they're going to say, oh, let's go to next week. But, 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 but look, everything you've quoted doesn't mean much in the biggest scheme of things. No. So the biggest scheme of things is not much. But in the legal industry, um, we, we truly have become a, a national legal institution uh, from Adelaide. And that's really rare mm. because every firm around us, including all the larger firms, uh, are all headquartered out of Sydney and Melbourne. Mm-hmm. We're the largest law firm in the, in the country that isn't headquartered in Sydney and Melbourne, meaning Perth, Brisbane, Adelaide have never produced a larger law firm than us. So is that a good thing or a bad thing? I don't know, but, but producing a professional service firm of that scale out of a second-tier Australian city hasn't been done in the legal sector before. So, you know, we're proud of that. Only people in the legal sector would be interested in that stat. Yeah. It's a real legal comment, but for the one lawyer listening, that, that, that one was for you. That's, that's <laughs> brilliant. So I'm really interested in your methodologies of attacking it. You say you're at the point of bankruptcy. You're five times larger now. Yes, what, and we've nationalized with And nationalized it. So yep. I really just want to deep dive into what was your strategies? What were your methodologies? What processes did you introduce? You know, what mindset did you have? What vision did you set the company in that space? Well, in the first few years, it was turnaround. Mm. It was survival. And because we tipped our, ourselves into Sydney, we couldn't turn back. That would have been absolute the end of the world for us. Mm. So we had to persevere and we had to somehow pursue a national strategy, even though we, our economics were very, very uncompetitive. Mm-hmm. So... One of the best things I ever did, I think, was as a condition of taking over the leadership, uh, I said to the partners that they would all have to commit for two years to not take a call from a recruiter or to not resign. So so if I was going to step in, everyone had to stick together mm. uh, and everyone agreed to do that. Uh, and at least we had the core team held together to try and, um, you know, hold it together, rebuild. rebuild the economics and at least put ourselves in a position where we could try and grow and and again we talk about luck we had a little bit of luck early on in my turnaround uh there was a major piece of litigation that we won uh and then there was a major client that became very active and and there was just a bit of a revenue kicker Mm -hmm. in addition to all the cost reform that i had to implement uh and and the two things came together and we just got some breathing space for a year and then uh, we began to build 
did you so let's talk more again the strategy then okay so you've rebuilt now we're talking i'm looking five years ahead yep what did you put in place look the big thing that i did was a uh running a law firm in adelaide meant that i spent most of the working week uh really for the last up until COVID of last year not in adelaide mm. so so it's been on average three nights a week first in sydney and then melbourne then we moved to brisbane and then of course perth uh and being in those cities during the week and staying close to of course the team you have and customers but most importantly for us we've grown by acquisition okay so for me it's been a persuasive exercise of winning talent poaching talent from rivals acquiring firms uh, a combination of mergers as well uh, and doing that outside of my comfort zone here on Guja Street in Adelaide mm. uh, and being on Collins Street, on Macquarie Street, uh, waterfront place on, on the river there in Brisbane um, and, and working hard in foreign markets to persuade people that our vision and our style uh, would have its place in the national first division mm -hmm. and we've managed to do that over time. And the big breakthrough for me uh, was when I persuaded half of a there, – there was a large global office, a firm called DLA Piper, very prominent global law firm, but I managed to persuade half of their Brisbane office, 10 partners and about 30 other lawyers, uh, to leave and to set up our Brisbane office. That was in 2011. And that, that was a big breakthrough deal that put us back on the radar as not just being a firm that was trying to survive but that was on the front foot yeah. and maybe it's a credible organization. And from there, we executed a further quite significant merger. Uh, with a, It was a prominent Melbourne firm that had lost its way on its national expansion called Herbert Gear, mm -hmm. uh, and worked very hard on that for two years and persuaded those guys to come on board. Uh, and then from there, from 2014, um, uh, we executed re really two more major acquisitions, but a lot of lateral poaching of lawyers that uh, were prominent in more prestigious firms, but we managed to persuade they could have better careers with us. So it's, it's been a people journey yeah. and it's been about persuading talent that they should be with us. And the analogy I use is, you know, I, I, I'm like, you know, one of those football managers uh, that poaches and does good draft picks. <laughs> um, you know, those famous English soccer managers yeah, that, yeah. that really focus on building the team and that, that's what that's what we've done there's a few there's a few things in that one thing when you were speaking early on is about you were you were traveling quite a bit yes interstate a fair bit you have a young family how did you manage the family and the travel and uh, and that continuous drive to be away from family to grow a business no, nothing, nothing beats and I say this to everyone that I ever talked to, nothing beats having a strong sense of purpose. Mm. And, and, and if anyone in business hasn't done one yet, I strongly recommend it. Try a turnaround. There's nothing more fun mm. than trying to, to turn something around because you just get up and it's, you know, like you're at war. <laughs> and so in those first two years, I mean, my first week in the leadership job, I met uh, our banker's representative. Mm. And I hadn't met him before. And I, I was taken to lunch with him. Uh, and as I walked in, he stood up and said, Adrian, this is the first week in the job, uh, the leader of this yeah. firm. And he said, Adrian, don't worry, we're not going to foreclose because we, we, we were in breach of all our covenants and we had yeah, high right. levels of debt. So, so from there on, you know, the next 18 months was 
survival yeah. and turning it around. And, and that's a huge amount of fun. Mm. And, and I say to everyone, if you can get through it, then you can get through anything. What, what was so fun about it? Oh, just, just a sense of uh, can I do it? Mm. And also a, a sense of responsibility to everyone else that they've asked me to try and lead this place out. Um, I can't let them down. Mm. And that is so much better than waking up in the morning and saying, well, you know, what have I got ahead of me? There's no real purpose to yeah. the day. So I, I loved that challenge. Yeah. It was, it was, that was the, the best two years of my professional life. Yeah. You hit rock bottom. The only way was up. Only way is up. Well, it could have gone worse. We well, could have, have actually completely gone under because we were on the verge yeah. of that. So back to the question of, of um, working and managing both family and oh, a role. Yeah, I, I was talking too much, wasn't no, I? No, no, no. You, your point of having a purpose is uh, is absolutely crystal clear. And it, well, for, for us, it's something that we work with a lot of businesses on is we help them define their purpose. Yeah. It really, for me, it's about your own individual purpose and family can provide that as well as oh, business. Yes. And the irony of that, that call to say it's in January 2009 to say, you know, right in the middle of the GFC, yeah. um, you know, will you lead the firm? I was in the US with my wife um, going through a very challenging personal period because, because we had serious challenges having children. Mm. We desperately wanted to have kids. So we, we were in the thick of these deep personal challenges, mm. you know. She and I were in, were in Denver, Colorado. Uh, and then I get that call um, saying the firm's crumbling, will you help? Uh, and Polly and I were working hard to become parents. That all worked. Margot was born, she was conceived shortly after, and she was born in November 2009. So my first child comes along, best moment of my life. Absolutely. And you're turning around the firm that I loved as well. You know, I had a deep empathy for this firm. I, you know, it's a labour of love to lead this firm. So success with Margot. You know, and of course, you want to build something for her. You're turning the firm around, so it was a, a wonderful period of turning things around and 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 going from a low some low points in 2007, 2008, to both having a family and leading a business that I loved. Mm. How did you manage your time? Well, you're young. Within, you're young. You're young, and, you and you burn the candle. At and, both and, and I was already travelling before Margot was born. Yeah. So of course, it was normal that I wasn't there during the week. Okay. So you had those habits ingrained. Yes. Already. Yes. Because a child comes along, it does change a lot. Yeah. It, it, I'm very lucky. My, my wife, Polly, she and I want the same things. Okay. So we, we've, we're very aligned on those things. So she was very focused on supporting me doing what I had to do. In the rise to where you are today, and obviously all the success, I rattled off those stats before, and the, uh, and the success is, uh, is quite paramount. Or prevalent, I should say. Um, did you? How did you go about it? Did you? Did you read books? Did you find mentors? Did you go on back and study? Like, what was your? Where, where did you grapple on, or did you have this knowledge already in built? One of my weaknesses is that I never had a mentor that taught me much. Um, a number of friends who I worked for, uh, who I liked very much, but they didn't teach me much. Um, <laughs> No, 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 I don't. Think, I don't <laughs> no, mean that as yeah, a criticism yeah, at all. Yeah. But, but I just didn't have that. I was, I was a, I was a bit of a self-starter, and that's just the way things were set up when mm. I was quite young. So I, I, 
I learned from my own mistakes, mm -hmm. unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> I've made so many, yeah. uh, but I've learned from them myself. Later in life, luckily, um, uh, I've had the benefit of one or two businessmen who I admire greatly, who I've become very close with. Uh, and so I've probably learned more in the last few years about what lies ahead from them. But in my young years, I didn't really have much. Mm. What was one of those mistakes that you learned the biggest lesson oh, from? Look, the, the most famous one was just lack of discipline around. I remember being sent out uh, to a client. There's a business story. Uh, and there was a secret plan to close a number of their plants. So there was going to be massive terminations of employees. Uh, and I was interviewing one of the senior executives who didn't know yet. It's a really embarrassing mm. story. Uh, <laughs> and I assumed he did know about it. So I let him know about it. That, that meant that he was about to lose his job and his whole team was about to be made redundant. So he terminated my interview pretty quickly. Oh. I was interviewing him. I was doing an investigation yeah, of a matter with yeah. him as a lawyer. Uh, and shortly after, uh, you know, he went to his boss and the whole of the company suddenly knew about these secret plans to close these plants. Oh, yeah. uh, and so I got a little bit of trouble for uh. that. And my boss at the time called me in and said, what have you done? So, of course, I offered my resignation. Yeah. Uh, I was about 24, 25. And he said, look, and this is a good piece of advice that he gave me. He said, look, th there's no harm in making mistakes, but it's a, it, it's a crime if you don't learn from them. Yeah. So I've learned to be a little more discreet uh, <laughs> as I've gotten older. And I tell that story to the young lawyers to say, look, we all make stupid mistakes, Absolutely. but please learn from them. Yeah, pick yourself up yep. and, and get yep. back on. Yep. The, 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 I mean, that really comes down to the growth mindset. You can't dwell on those mistakes. I think everything you do should be about, uh, again, coming back to that growth and learning, right? Yes, you're going to make mistakes, but the best way to learn is by making those. Is by making. You're mistakes. absolutely right. What a! I'm 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 really interested in the the growth period, right? You're you're a new CEO, and and, and I guess this could go back to year two when you're. Uh, this question can come back to year two when you're you're working with the Formula One teams. How did you manage overwhelm? How did you manage the the time? Look, as as a growth, you're trying to turn around those sickening feelings that go through your stomach, the, well, the, the unknown. The well, the beautiful thing for those, again, my mother's older than me. She's listening. But apart from that, <laughs> if there's anyone listening who's younger than me um, and they still haven't got to this point, they've got this to look forward to. I'm a massive worrier. Mm. So if someone, you know that old line when I started leading the firm, the old, you know, what the consultants would come in and, and they'd say the old, you know, what keeps you up at night because yeah. they're trying to get to the issue so they yeah. can sell you a consulting service. And, of course, I always answer or used to always answer, everything worries me. <laughs> everything worries me. I get it from my genetics, I think. I think there's always a disaster that's waiting in the morning. You know, yeah. something's going to go wrong. Yeah. The beauty of getting older, one of the beauties of getting older is you learn that you actually always get through things mm. and you don't worry as much anymore because even though there's something uh, that lies ahead that's uncertain, You've been through it 20 times and you say, I'll get it through the 21st time. Mm. So, so huge worrier, always, you know, not sleeping and, and thinking about things. But in the last five or six years, I've become much more secure in myself and my capacity to get through adversity as long as I stay focused and, and work hard. Did you ever feel imposter syndrome? Well, I mean, I don't feel imposter syndrome because I don't think I've achieved anything. So, <laughs> so I don't feel like I'm uh, – well, I'm not. I'm just a mediocre person uh, 
you know, doing his best. So, so I don't feel like I, I'm successful. Mm. So therefore, I, I'm not an imposter because I'm just ordinary. Well, you're not. Like, if well, you, if if I know comparison is the root of all evil, but if you do, if you look at from a, the success factors, you have achieved a lot. Well, yeah, but one of my best friends is Robert Champion de Crepney, who is, in my view, the state's by far best businessman. Mm. And I spend a lot of time with him. I'm very lucky. Uh, when I benchmark myself against him, I realise I've got about 100 <laughs> years to go to get to a reasonable level. So it all depends who you spend your time with, doesn't it? Yeah, well, it? that's right. Yeah. Do you believe that in, in its own right, that, that you are a, a product or an average of who you hang around? Yes. If I use Robert as an example, I spend time with him and he's always pulling me up on mistakes made or weaknesses and I'm always trying to refine them and improve them. Now, if I was with someone who isn't of his calibre, mm. um, would I be trying to improve myself? No. So, so we all want to keep improving ourselves, don't we? Absolutely. Well, yes, I think the people in well, this I think, room I think do, everyone yeah. does. It's just that some people just don't know the glory of advancement because they haven't had the, the benefit of leadership or guidance. Mm. And our job, you know, your job and my job, and Robert DeCrepney's job is to keep trying to influence younger people um, to see the beauty of personal development mm. and how wonderful it can be when you can be your best. It, it makes life just wonderful, doesn't it? Yeah. Do you do any of uh, your own personal development other than sort of the uh, obvious of trying to improve every single day? Do you, do you read books? Do you Look, I read, I read a lot of history yeah. and pre I start early in the morning. Mm -hmm. I'm usually in, at my bench at about 6.15 in the morning. And I'll almost always make a few bullet points of the key priorities I've got and how I'm tracking against them um, and keep setting new goals as well. Mm. A quarterly goal, a six-monthly goal, a five-year goal, a goal by the time I'm 70, you know, mm. and I'm always refining them and looking at them and checking progress. You know, you're on a plane and you're making notes. So I'm continuously scrutinizing myself and trying to push myself to um, go a little bit faster. So I'm probably more of that type. And yeah. then I'm just trying to watch other people now and, and listen and learn and see what I can copy them a bit more. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Do you – I want to go into the goal setting. Can you give us an example of some a goal that you might set for the next 12 months for yourself? Uh, well, yes. I, I have very clear quantitative and um, – so financial. Yeah. You know, profit targets. Yeah, yeah. I'm obsessed with profit targets. And I'm obsessed with acquisitions. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm always setting goals in the business that I want to hit a particular deal or a particular profit level by a particular time. That, 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 that's, that's not unusual. Yeah. In the longer term, I do have some you know, hopes to contribute a little bit more to the state's economy. And so I you know, try to set goals for mm. uh, you know, playing a deeper role in doing that. So going back to the, the growth of, of Thompson Gear over the years, how much emphasis did you put on the culture of the business? A huge amount. The, you know, I mentioned earlier that I wanted the firm to become a competitive animal and not an inward-looking political organisation that just had people fighting over the spoils of this you know, pie that was obviously shrinking. Yeah. So growing the pie and outward-looking men and women who were just hungry to hit the market. Uh, and that, that's a cultural transformation mm. and that was achieved by a whole range of creating different incentives and creating different accountabilities and, of course, farewelling people that could never meet those standards mm -hmm. and welcoming those that I believed could and trying to show some judgment around 
um, you know, those decisions. Brilliant. So, it, it's, so, it's, so it's absolutely equivalent to, you know, the Crows wanting to win a premiership or the Power wanting to win yeah, a premiership, you know, brilliant. building these high-performance groups of men and women, well, men, men obviously uh, – in, in the, in the, the power scene. case, yeah. but men and women in the crows case because they've got a female team. Yeah. Uh, but you know, you, you know, it's a people. It's building those teams up, and then setting a style that you think is match winning. That's what we're all about. What did you, What do you think is the number one thing that a CEO should do from a cultural perspective? Well, what what what? Well, there's a million things. Yeah. But for me, it's about setting an example of discipline and seriousness. Mm -hmm. So, for, yeah, and being consistent with that. So, so you know, one of the lonely things is that I used to love the social fabric of the firm when mm -hmm. I was a, when I wasn't leading the firm. Uh, I love a drink and I love people uh, uh, and I love a late night. But as the leader of the firm, I very withdrew from that mm -hmm. uh, to set an example of complete objectivity and seriousness and focus. So I don't socialize as much with my people, uh, but I th I'd hope that I set an example uh, of you know discipline and reliability because I want them to learn from those things. Do you think socializing with them would detract the relationship? No, no, no. I, look, I will, but I'm not going to be there at 2 a.m. Yeah, no. Uh, no kicking off the karaoke <laughs> song, you know, and, and making the eye at the handsome young boy or girl, you know. Um, no, I'm going to be focused on um, being home in bed and getting yes, up. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, Spend yeah. time with so the family. I, I, I believe right? strongly – well, I believe strongly that, that – the head of an organization should be always the first to leave and let yeah. the young kids enjoy themselves without the scrutiny of the boss. Okay. That's what I believe. Yeah. There's no right and wrong. That, that's my way of doing yeah, things. Okay. And look, that has worked very well in the modern workplace standards in the last five or six years. Yeah, no doubt. You know. How do you manage your time? Well, not well. <laughs> uh, because what, I, I a, you know, It's something I'm absolutely I grappling waste with. time. <laughs> I get so angry at myself. A couple uh, of hours in a podcast, yeah. Yeah, but, but you know, I always feel tired. I probably exercise a lot and that keeps me positive and enthusiastic even when I'm tired because, mm. you know, exercise is, you know, it's, it's endorphins and all those yeah. things. Um, but then that sucks away energy for a few other things. So it's a balance. But, look, I don't use my time as well as I should and I'm trying – as you get older uh, and, you know, we're, we're all going to die one day, you, you become more focused on using that time better. Um, and I think I'm getting better at it. But, but gee, I, I wish I'd used my time better in my earlier years. Mm. So Do that's you, a lesson to you, you know. Oh, absolutely. I it's one. I asked the question because it's something I'm absolutely grappling with yep. at the moment. Is how to best utilize the so diary and um, organize meetings and events. And you know, you talked to me about how, how this podcast, and I said one a week. And you're saying that's a lot of time. Yes, it is. <laughs> it is a lot of time, as well as trying to manage a business in this. Now, well, you process, have an enormous so. workload, but you're mm. young, mm. so you've got energy levels, and and you can, as long as you look after yourself. And don't you know? Do everything in moderation with your alcohol and your diet, and keep fit. Um, you've got a not, you, you, you've got so much capacity at the moment. Yeah, dropping the ball and probably <laughs> looking up the alcohol <laughs> bit. I'd say there's a few. Well, it's one of the there. pleasures of life, isn't it? <laughs> well, it's uh, it's the lunches every day that get me. Yeah, I mean, but you're growing up. a business. Yeah, well, that's right. So you have to do that. Absolutely. And you know, it, it, you just have to stretch. Do you put emphasis on your diary though? Is there a way you manage it specifically? Do you? I don't know you have any. Very poorly. Yeah. I'm an instinctive person, mm. um, so I just respond to things. Mm -hmm. And there's, you know, rightly or wrongly, there's a picking order of people around you. Um, yeah. uh, you know, so so if the premier's office gets in touch, obviously you drop everything. Yeah. It, you know, if Decrepney gives me a call, you know, I take that call. Yeah. Um, but you know, I can't do that for everyone. Yeah, no doubt. 
So I want to just ask, rounding off the, the, you know, your rise and the growing of the business as CEO, if, to, to young CEOs who are starting off in roles, what's a piece of advice that you can give them? Take a long-term view mm. and that then will enable you to feel relaxed about short-term bad days because you say, oh, it doesn't matter. Mm. I've got a 10-year plan. What happens today is irrelevant in the scheme of things mm. and it just lowers your heart rate, calms you down, and allows you to always say, am I on track to achieve what I want in 10 years? Yes. Today was a little bit of an aberration, but I'm still on track in the long term and you sleep well. So long-term thinking. Mm. So this is something I grapple with because I, I, I love that uh, viewpoint and I'm obviously trying to do the same thing and manage a business. Take a 10-year viewpoint. Does that... Does that 10 years just keep moving? <laughs> like when do you ever reach the 10 years or the five years or well, whatever, whatever it might be? It might be, it might be like. a 20-year plan. Yeah. No, I've, I've got a 20-year plan. But the world changes so much and plans oh, change and of things, course. things move. Please and- don't think that when I say a plan, it's a, it's a detailed business plan yeah. that has everything mapped out because, of course, by tomorrow most of it's irrelevant. Yeah. No, no, but the broad vision of what you're trying to end up looking like. Play the long game. Play the long game. Yeah. So many, I say that to our young lawyers. Don't get stressed about what happened this year. It, it, it's irrelevant in the scheme of things. Keep building your skills, keep building your knowledge um, and just keep heading to where you want to be. Become a, our, our business is about building experts. Yeah. So how much closer are you to being an expert in an interesting field? If you're getting closer, then it's all on track. Mm. The money will come. That, yeah. that will always come to good people, always. Yeah. Do you, on touching on the relationship side, would you say as a CEO or a young CEO, would you advise them to really work and hone in on the relationships, both internally of the business and externally? Uh, well, you can never know enough people. Mm, so you can never stop um, – growing your black book mm. and along the way you some people might not connect well with you but some will so a that's fun mm. but b you will learn uh and then there'll be win-wins yeah so of course so so nothing novel in that yeah, yeah. You, you, pe- pe- it's a, everything's about people absolutely i agree so that takes me to this point you you've been you've come in at number 26 on the advertisers most influential people uh, in South Australia they've uh, they've touted you as one of the most connected people in in South Australia as well can you explain well obviously that's not the case <laughs> and and it's it's very nice of the advertiser to think that's the case so, yeah, so you're you're suggesting what that no 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 they're, look, they're, they're new they're not newsworthy i'm a complete <laughs> obviously I'm, I'm a nobody but 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 you know i try hard mm. uh and I hope that I can achieve my full potential. Mm. I mean, that, that's… What does it mean to be the most influential or one of the most influential? Well, or, or, I don't know what it means, but I know what it doesn't mean. And it, doesn't, <laughs> it means there's so many people in this town and they're, and they're lovely people. You, oh, yeah. know? Uh, you know, I love Adelaide, as you know. Oh, yes. um, but they'll openly talk about how they run the city. Yeah. Uh, no one runs this city. No. Uh, our premier is our most powerful person, but he'll tell you that he doesn't run it because no one runs it because it needs hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of influential men and women who are all aligned to build this city and to build this state. Uh, And so we're all part of a group and we need to be as united as possible. Uh, But look, the the biggest mistake I must say (laughs) is when people tell me about how powerful and influential they are. And you, you get it a lot. Yeah. 
You get what, it a lot. Why do you think they do? Is it, it's an I ego thing. I don't know. Poor, maybe poor judgment. I don't know. Do you play play it down though? I mean, you've said that you're nobody. You've never amounted to anything. You're not successful by any stretch. Well, I, I think it's true. In what respect? I mean, well, because because you know, I went to Seton High, and uh, most of the kids I grew up with weren't as fortunate as me. They didn't have a mum who pushed them really hard to mm. get educated. So that that was my lucky break. Yeah, yeah that, that that's my big lucky break. Um, but they were as, they were they were smarter than me. They were more charismatic than me, uh, and I can tell you, most of them were more charismatic and smart than all of the middle class professional men and women I've dealt with in my time. Mm. So we're, we're, there's nothing special about those people who are lucky enough to get educated and play a deeper role in, um, you know, the future, for example, of you know a country or or a city like uh, in the way that you play a role and I play a role. So we're nothing special. Absolutely, I agree. So. 2018, you became chair of the South Australian. Oh no, I became a commissioner, and oh, then commissioner. I became the chair a few months ago. A few months. Okay, yes, there yes, you yes, go. yes. So you are now the chair of the South Australian Productivity Commission. Thank you. Well done. <laughs> advisor, obviously, an advisor to Stephen Marshall. Can you explain to us what that is? Look, look. St- I think Stephen's an outstanding premier, and he. Um, I think he brings terrific commercial and economic acumen to his role. And one of his initiatives was to establish the South Australian Productivity Commission, which was a version of the federal body, and that it would be an independent unit uh, that drove direct advice to him personally on microeconomic or broader economic reform opportunities to grow, to get our economic growth up and to get our productivity up. So I was deeply interested in that. Uh, I, I want to play sub role in the renaissance of this state, I want to support him because he can't do it on his own. Mm. And he, he needs 100 people like me, not in government but outside of government, that are helping him. Yeah. Because, you know, he, he could be doing, earning a lot more money, doing a, you know, having a lot more freedom in other roles, but he's chosen to serve. Yeah. So in our, our own small way, we all need to serve. You, you do, I do, et cetera. And that's my tiny way of um, trying to serve. And why I like it is because, A, I think I'm reasonably competent at building high-performance teams and we need to build the SAPC into a small economic um, analysis capability that can give great advice. And, and, and two, I, you know, I'd like to think that I have a reasonably good understanding of the economy that my views added to the team behind me might be of use to Stephen as well. So that's why I've taken it on. I don't take a fee. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I do it for love uh, and I do it to serve and assist. Yeah, I'm pretty passionate about the growth of this state too. I grew a stone. I grew up in this a stone's throw away from where you grew up. Yeah, I, know. I was at, I was at Granger at Seton, so we're next door neighbors. Great neighborhoods, in, 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 absolutely old swamplands. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what What is it uh, from from the advice though of South Australia? Like, what does that look like? Yeah. What are you advising on? That my key theme um, is that in my mind is that this state must build its R&D platform. Mm-hmm. If, if we, one of my key preoccupations is that if we are to outperform uh, other states in the future, and we have to, to catch up, because you've got to remember that we grow at a lower rate than other states in this country. Mm. We're, we're worth less. We earn less. Our productivity is lower. So you know, we were in... 
we've had some deep issues mm. uh, that we have to grapple with. Our, our budget is in deep deficit. Mm -hmm. we, we have growing levels of debt. The only way we can recover from that is if we lift our growth rates. And to me, the only way we can lift our growth rates is to become, obviously we have to become more competitive, but we must have a very strong research and development base. We, we need more scientists, more people in labs, building technologies and new ideas that can be then used by people like you and I, the businessmen and businesswomen, to grow businesses. And, and Stephen's really preoccupied with that through Lot 14, which mm -hmm. I think is terrific. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think we need to continue to focus on building the R&D base and not just building the infrastructure. Yeah. Uh, and so that's a long-term preoccupation. Uh, for me, I've got a number of others, but that, that's a central that's a, one. That really specific, defines my Specifically key. in any in, in, in defense, in health, in like Oh, well, well everything I just said flows into those sectors. Yeah. It, look, we will, Daniel, we will never have a manufacturing base in this city mm -hmm. unless we own the product. Mm. I'm even skeptical about submarines. Yeah. That is, unless we own the product, you will not have a manufacturing sector here because we can never compete on cost. So we need to build... You, you, you remember the pharmaceutical company Foldings when you were a little boy? Yeah, yeah. It was a famous pharmaceutical company. got taken over, sadly, maybe 15, 16 years ago. But it was an example of building medical technologies that then built manufacturing jobs in Salisbury and on it went. Mm. And we, we need to produce 20 of those. Mm. Equally in resources, you know, I mentioned Robert DeCrepney before, we, we, we need to have you know, mining companies built in this town um, and that's around our comparative advantage. But it's all going to be people, but at the end of the day, we're going to need to build our technologies um, to then be the platform for those to go off and, and, and build and lead. And do you think we're on the right track? Well, we, we are, but I think we're going to continue to need to do better because we have to grow at higher rates than we have historically to beat that debt level. Hmm. And to his great credit again, Stephen said uh, on the way in as Premier, we need to get to 3% a year. And I don't think structurally we're there yet. So we're going to need to do everything we can. Everyone needs to be open to reform and, and a bit of competitiveness injection. Mm -hmm. The private sector, the public sector, uh, if we're to rebuild our fiscal strength and grow again and keep up with the rest of the country. Because you don't want to live in a state that's always getting poorer than everyone else. That's right. Because that means that everyone will just want to leave. Yeah. So how do we attract people? Well, it, it, you've got to think long term. Mm. But most importantly, we need to invest in our young knowledge workers. And again, I say we need to build an R&D platform. And I would be delighted if our federal and state governments uh, supported that even more in SA. Mm -hmm. And in addition to their important infrastructure investments, they add to that strong investments in people and building those research institutions and research hubs. Not, not with buildings, that's great, mm -hmm. but, but, but filling them with people that uh, have the funding behind them to do the research that will spawn the companies of the future. So it's actively go out and find these people and bring them here and offer Well, them. you need money. Yeah. So this is about our state government spends around $20 billion a year. Mm. Uh, you know, they've got so many competing interests for that money, including hospital beds and schools. So, yeah. I, so I get that. It's mm. such a hard job to deal with those competing interests. But I think we're going to have to keep increasing the prioritization around what I just said as opposed to maybe traditional infrastructure projects which state governments as a whole feel that sure, is important yeah. for them to uh, be involved in. And, and they are, 
Transport's critical, other infrastructure's critical, but so are people. Uh, and we need to find more funds for those people in the research, in the research space. That's my long-term view. Will COVID have an impact? The, the- yes. There is not a doubt in my mind that lower to mid-level professional service jobs will be more able to be um, secured in cities like ours in the future due to the working from home movement. Mm. It won't be astronomical, but we will attract to this town more of those, if I can call it, um, lower-end professional jobs due to our cost and simplicity and lifestyle yeah. advantages. Well, we're seeing it. People are- and, and, and I think that's real. Do you think people will continue to, yes. to come? Yes, I do. And I think more and more large corporates will be very open to having, you know, not so much a back office function, but the but the mid level professional jobs that don't necessarily need to be near the customers in the big cities, mm. and they'll hub it down here. So I think we've got a real angle there, and that that will be a source of growth in this town. I've got I've got no doubt about that. I speak about not not just as the chair of the SAPC, but as a leader of a reasonably large professional service firm. Um, w- we will bring more jobs into Adelaide over mm. time due to the working from home movement, yeah. and the need for highly paid jobs in in my firm not to be at 60 Martin Place in one of the most expensive towers in the country. I can move them here. Yeah. And, and, and we're all ahead, including the customer. Is that a fear for some of those other states? Is like a, are they going to – they're going to work in tandem, right? They're going to want to grow their states and cities in the same. I was in Brisbane this week. Yeah. And, of course, they have the same view. Yeah. Uh, and they'll do well, very well out of this as well because they've got the Olympics on top of it. Yeah. So they've got the momentum from the Olympics. And the lifestyle benefits of Queensland, the, uh, but the look, weather Sid- in itself. Until <laughs> Sydney and Melbourne can get its cost base right and its infrastructure right, uh, there will be a desire for some workers to say, you know, if I could pick up this job in Adelaide, I'd go there, and the employers will see it because there's a cost advantage. Yeah. So we'll get some benefit from that. Yeah, absolutely. I didn't want to jump into COVID too much, but recently Thompson Gear put up a post on their LinkedIn page. Now you don't have LinkedIn, so you might not no, have seen it. No, I didn't it. see it. <laughs> Where they're, they're stating that um, is it like what is lawful and reasonable uh, on mandatory vaccines within businesses? Yes. Can you provide some? Look, we, we've got a very simple view that we have to um, protect to the extent possible the safety of our people, mm-hmm. uh, and for the vast majority of them. Uh, that means um, for those who have been double vaccinated, they're very welcome in the office. Mm-hmm. But for those who uh, choose not to be double vaccinated, uh, then they're not welcome at the office for the time being. We'll see how things evolve. Yeah. Uh, and I'm, not, I'm not discriminating. Uh, I respect everyone's choice, uh, but I'm not going to put the safety at risk or, or the safety of my people at risk because of people's uh, cho- choices not to be double vaccinated. I've got a very simple view on it. And if there's a few employees that criticize me for discriminating against them, I'll say, you can work from home. Uh, and if you can't work from home uh, and you don't want to be double vaccinated, then we'll sit down and talk about it. Yeah. So very simple. When we get to the point, like I, I run a obviously professional services company yes. as well. It, uh, BHP being one of those clients have mandated that everyone in the business is, um, is vaccinated. Yes. The, we as clients – going into that business well you have to be as well have to they be would as say well. that you'd have to be as yeah, well absolutely. I would have thought, yeah. does that not a, a, we, apply, i didn't go apply. that far yeah. I, I haven't required that friends and clients coming into the office have to show proof of double vaccination i haven't got to that point no as in it's a balance for as me. in your clients would all if some of your clients yes. are saying that you need to be vaccinated what happens then in that in that situation can you then mandate it oh so if they said as a supplier 
even though you're not physically proximate with us, yes. we still require you to be double vaccinated. Well, okay, so you don't need to be in the room with them. Is yeah, that what you're exactly. Saying? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I think it's a bit easier for us. Yeah, It's, a bit, it's really hard in construction and resources where yeah. there is that physical uh, proximity. Yeah. So we're, we're a bit clear of that. Of that. Yeah, you can work online. Yeah. All, yep. the, all the above. So you've just recently, going into Thompson Gear, recently uh, been named Australian Mid-Market Legal Advisor of the oh, Year. Oh, thank you. Yeah, no, that, was a, that was a big moment for yes, us. Yes, that's brilliant. And well done to you to pick that up. Congratulations. No, no, that was a big deal. I made a big fuss about it earlier in the week in my weekly email to the firm because that, that's a we, – we beat all of the blue chip firms, six blue chip firms, uh, you know, the, the big prestigious Sydney head, headquartered national firms Allens and Mallisons and Freehills and Coors and Ashurst, uh, and they bid hard for that uh, gong, and we picked it up. Well done. And that's a key marker for our progress because mm. I've worked hard, at, we've worked hard at building a very strong mergers and acquisitions capability nationally. Mm-hmm. When I started, we had three M&A partners. Now we've got 25. Yeah, wow. And they're spread all around the country, uh, big deal count, prestigious deal list. Uh, so that, that was a big moment. So thank you yeah. for acknowledging no, that. No, it's brilliant. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. And we see that as a stepping stone to Absolutely. getting closer to a few other things. Does the What does the mergers and acquisition market look like? You know, coming out of COVID, is there it's a booming. Of, yeah. It's booming. I think it's white hot. I think it's overheated. Yeah. Uh, and we have to play that game. We have to play the cycle. It, but I think it's overheated. Is that because there's sort of shortage in people? So companies are just like, well, I can't go on. Too high. much money. Uh, too much money. Che- money's too cheap. Uh, uh, enormous stimulus. Uh, and all of those things put together, cash balances are high, um, M&A is going through the roof. I mean, I'm hearing frightening stories of uh, debt conditions being imposed on investors, meaning no conditions, you know, no covenants, lower interest rates, have as much as you want. Um, and so that scares me, but okay. our job is to serve and so we'll, we'll, we'll ride that way. But I'm, I'm, I'm a bear over the medium term in relation to those markets. I, I think we are overheated. Mm. It might run for a while. I can't call the top, um, but we're approaching it, I think. And to me, at the moment, it feels a little bit like 2006, 2007, mm. when it was very bullish like this and the GFC came along. Yeah. We, we are a very highly distorted world at the moment for obvious reasons. Yeah, We've got incredibly loose monetary policy, incredibly uh, aggressive fiscal expansion policies, all for good reasons. But they come at a cost. Yeah. And the cost is we are at risk of economic instability at the moment. Is that not one of your strategies though to acquire? Sure. And grow? Yeah, yeah of course. So of course. Is, no, a, I'm, a, I'm not criticizing, okay. but just that the price is being paid uh, uh, and, the, and the frequency and volume of deals is, is very, very high. Okay. And it's a product of cheap money, huge levels of confidence. Yeah. Um, and Daniel, if I can give you one piece of advice, the business cycle did not end in 2021. It's been around for a very long, long, long time. Mm-hmm. Humans follow on the way up and they overshoot on the way up because mm-hmm. we all copy each other and we yeah. go up and up. Yeah. We also overshoot on the way down. When things are bad, we think it's going to go bad forever. Mm. And the job of people like you and I as leaders is to try and say, let's not get too excited on the way up. Let's not get too pessimistic on the way down. Yeah, That's Absolutely. the trick. But yeah, business cycles, watch out for them. Yeah. They'll get you every time. They always come and go. So your future outlook is that it will come back down. Oh, of course. Red and, and, and we're lucky because we're uh, diversified and we have access to litigation services and uh, restructuring services that are stronger in downward markets. Yeah. Um, so we, we won't neglect those capabilities even though they're quiet now because uh, all restructuring is 
uh, to make sure that we're ready to serve when we're in a different stage of the economic cycle. What are your, what's your advice to those who are getting knocks on the door and getting asked to be bought out? Do you, because to me, the outlook of business looks quite positive. No, no, and in, in, in the short in, term it is. Yeah. Look, my view is never lose sight of the fundamentals of business valuation. Mm. So, you know, you know, the old, again, you're a young man, but those phrases stronger for longer mm. or, or the whole valuation metrics has changed. You know, you don't value a business in a conventional way anymore. You, you, you value it just on revenue, don't worry about profit. Now, that applies for some businesses. Uh, don't lose sight of long-term valuation methods. Mm. And, and, you know, if you really are being paid an abnormally high premium at the moment due to all the hype and cheap money, um, you know, reflect on it. Yeah, yeah. Have a <laughs> look know? into it. There's been some very famous business people who understand valuation, and they sell at the top, and then they buy back. You know, commercial buildings and enterprise. I mean, Kerry Packer was famous that in yeah. media. Yeah, yeah, he understood media cycles, very cyclical, mm. and he understood whether they were at the bottom of the cycle, time to sell. He knew, sorry, time to time buy. To, yeah, time to sell. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, business cycles. Don't don't ignore them. Brilliant. All right, we are coming to an end. What does the future for Adrian Temple look like? Well, and Thompson Gear. Well, uh, look, I I can absolutely guarantee that this firm will be better and stronger in the future. I, I am supremely confident. So continuous growth. Yeah, but it will be quality growth and it will be better uh, because I think we've built the team, we've got the brand, uh, and irrespective of who's leading the firm now. Um, it will prosper. So I'm supremely confident about the firm uh, and about me. I'm just going to keep trying. Yeah. <laughs> keep ticking along. Yeah. Great. To round off the podcast, we always ask a, a bunch of quick fire questions. This is just, uh, they're, they're slightly different quirky, qu quirky questions. Um, but we are, we are big readers here at Synergy IQ and creating yes. Synergy Podcast. Are you reading anything at the moment? Yep, I'm reading a uh, a recent biography uh, of our finest prime minister Robert Menzies. Ah, yes. Yep, you're on a board of. Yes, the I'm a director of the Menzies Research the, Centre. Yes, which go. is a right of centre think tank. Yeah, aligned great. to the Liberal Party. Is that why you're reading the book? Or is it, no, uh, no, no, I'm well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to trying to qualify for the gig. But I'm look, I, I'm reading about his his time in the wilderness yeah, at the moment. Okay. That's what I was doing last night. What's the book called? Uh, well, it's Troy Bramston's. Uh, okay, take Menzies on the problem. Yeah, yeah, a brilliant, brilliant yeah, book. Yeah, excellent. Is there a book that stands out to you from a career growth point of view? That you've read in your time is there, or is there any book that you th you would recommend more than the next book? Not a book, but uh, a documentary mm -hmm. uh, on Nottingham Forest, mm -hmm. the greatest soccer team in oh, England, that, and Brian Clough, the greatest soccer coach in world history, took Nottingham Forest from the bottom of the second division yeah. to the top of the first division within a few years in the late seventies. And there's a brilliant film on them called I Believe in Miracles. Ah, excellent. Uh, so it's all about the possibilities of yeah. great leadership and big dreams. I love it. I'll get on to it. We can, is it on like a Netflix or anything like yeah, that? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah. Beautiful. I, I did ask this, well, a roundabout way I asked this during the podcast, but I want to bring it up here because this is, I want to ask from a life point of view, what is one lesson in your life that has taken you the longest to learn? Uh, probably self-awareness mm. and, you know, understanding. It took me 
a lot longer than it should have to work out the impact I have on other people mm. um, and, and to, you know, refine those qualities that, um, you know, don't necessarily translate that well. <laughs> <laughs> well, well. The impact on other people. Well, is adverse impact. Yeah. You, know, you, you know, I'm a very straight, honest person. Um, that doesn't work so well in Australia. Mm. You know, my, my, my genetics is from a very different part of the world. Yeah. Uh, it's a very direct, blunt part of the world. Uh, you need to be a bit more diplomatic and British in <laughs> Australia. You need to use subtlety. And it took me a long time to work that out okay. at my expense. But, you know, that's the journey, right? And that's yeah. the beauty of being a migrant. Absolutely. You get to develop. You do. <laughs> if you could invite three people over for dinner, who would they be? Oh, you should have, well, well Brian Clough. Yeah. Was the first one yeah. that I'd mentioned. Uh, probably Tom Playford, who I think was our finest premier. Yeah. And thirdly, um, uh, well, have to be Robert Menzies, wouldn't it? Our yeah, finest prime minister. Go. Yeah, that, that'd be a good one. That'd, that'd be, be a good one. one. We'll th- I'll, 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 uh, I'll just assume that Polly was invited, all right? So well, we- Polly, Polly will be there because <laughs> all I'll do is talk to her. We don't we have dinner I parties. I just don't want you getting Everyone in trouble. Everyone ignores me and they talk to her and I get ignored. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, of I know, course. I know the yeah. feeling. I just pour the wine. Yeah, I'm exactly right, 100%. <laughs> if you, what's some of the best advice that you've ever received? I, I, I didn't get much advice from many people, to be honest, because I'm, I, I, I come across as being a little self-assured. Uh, and so as a result, I think people have found me unapproachable mm. and, and it's rare. But occasionally people will tell me off and I'm always grateful for that. My mum tells me off. <laughs> <laughs> no better lesson than you know? getting told and, off by uh, mum. And a few others tell me off as well, but very rarely. When you say tell you off, you're an adult, right? You're well, they'll gonna... <laughs> pull me up and say you shouldn't have done that. Yeah, okay. I had that happen to me last Friday night Yeah, at a dinner party. I got told off by someone older than me and I hold in high regard. Yeah. And he said, Adrian, you shouldn't have done that. Uh, and um, I listened and I thought, actually, and I learned something from it. Yeah. But very few people would do that. Yeah. I wish they'd do it more. Mm. Yes. Self, self, it's hard, self, isn't it? Well, self-awareness, right? Friends, you, we're also scared to give critical commentary to our friends and they probably benefit from it. Oh, they absolutely benefit from it. I think receiving feedback is just as much a skill as providing I feedback. I agree. Right. So We've got to get better at we, that. We do. Absolutely. All of us. Yes. I try to take it. I mean, how good are you at receiving feedback and criticism? I pride myself on it because good. Good. But, but that comes back to my core values of being of always wanting to learn. If someone provides feedback, my approach is always I'll listen and I won't comment. And like, unless I need to, and and I'll and I'll decide whether I take that on or not. Yeah. Uh, but I'm not going to sit there and fight back and have an argument. I'm, I don't want to get into a war of words. You're entitled to your opinion if you believe something. I'll take that on board. Exactly. I might adjust my behaviour next time. But I'm, a, for me, I'm a sucker for knowledge. If someone's providing me for uh, with some how good is some, that with some advice, then I'm, I'm some keen, insight. Yeah, I'm keen to learn. Yeah. I, I feedback is a gift, right? That's how I look. But at I it. don't think we do it well. We don't. It's a muscle that you get better the more you do it. Everyone in Australia is telling everyone else how good they are <laughs> and how brilliant we are and how resilient we are because we've got two jabs. Yeah. <laughs> we should pat ourselves on the back for yeah. trying to save ourselves from dying. Yeah. I mean, seriously? Yeah. You know, yeah, I agree. If you had access to a time machine, where would you go? I'd go, yep, I'd, I'd go to, um, I'd go back to 1977. 1978, and go watch uh, 
Forest play. <laughs> there you go. When when Brian Clough was in charge. There you go. Yeah. Be in the rooms with him. Just watch the game. Oh, there you yeah. go. See the great man in action. That, that's awesome. If you had one superhero power, what would it be? Um, well, flying would be good, wouldn't it? It, it would be. It's a bit boring. I look at, <laughs> yeah, but I look at these birds. My, my, my dog, Cloughy, yeah. named after Brian Clough. Yeah. He, I watch him. For hours trying to – he watches these birds yeah. and they play with him. They yeah. stay in the branches and just mix him up. Yeah. And I think – I'm sure he's thinking, if only I could fly like that and check it out. So flying would be good fun because imagine looking at everything and checking sen- out things and disappearing for a while. Yeah, a sense of freedom. Yeah, freedom. Yeah, mm. yeah. But yeah. All right. I, I actually warned you on this. You did. It's the one <laughs> thing you warned me of. Okay. I, I can't thought, tell jokes. No, I know you can't. That's why I thought <laughs> – you are, you are a straight shooter and I thought if there's one question you're going to struggle on, it's this one. Well, well done for picking that. <laughs> I'm notorious for being the worst joke teller. You've actually got notes out. Because <laughs> well, I can't tell jokes. But, All right, but, so oh, let me ask the question. What is your best dad joke? Dad joke. Okay. <laughs> so it's got some relevance because I, I'm notorious for giving long PowerPoints. Okay, yeah. And I, my PowerPoints always go for too long. So why did the PowerPoint presentation cross the road? <laughs> Why? To get to the other slide. <laughs> so it, it, I'm so bad at telling jokes. So bad. Oh, it's brilliant. It's very, very The only time I get relevant. a laugh when I give a speech, I, I, I'll tell the joke. No one laughs. And then I'll say to the room, thanks for your support, and then they'll laugh. <laughs> yeah, it's the dig it yourself that always dig gets it myself, the yeah. that always gets Hopeless. The Hopeless. Brilliant. Thank you so much for your time today, Adrian. It's been wonderful learning a little bit more about you and your career, your journey, your experiences, your ups and downs and your learnings. Uh, thank you for all that you're doing for the South Australia as well. It, uh, you know, that, that can't go unnoticed. You, you're doing, you are a man of influence, even though you play it down. You are doing some really great things within the state. And, uh, you know, I'm on board. I'm on board completely with with growing and developing and i don't want to be known as a backwater state i want to i'm a south australian boy through and through so for me it's uh, it is always about growth and, and development of, of self and of the community and of the state so uh, thank you for all that you're doing well thank you and and that was a lot more fun for me than it was for you or any <laughs> listeners my mum enjoyed it but 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 you are and I mean this seriously, what you're doing is outstanding. Doing these things is outstanding uh, and you've got a huge future ahead of you. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. All the best. Thanks, guys. Take care. Thanks for listening to the podcast all. You can check out the show notes if there was anything of interest to you and find out more about us at synergyiq.com.au. I am going to ask, though, if you did like the podcast, it would absolutely mean the world to me if you could subscribe, rate and review. And if you didn't like it, that's all right too. There's no need to do anything. Take care, guys. All the best. Thank you once again for joining us here at Creating Synergy. It's been great spending this time with you. Please jump on to the Synergy IQ Facebook and LinkedIn page where the discussion continues after the show. Join our mailing list so you'll know what's happening next at synergyiq.com.au. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. And if you really enjoyed it, please share it with your friends.